We have our own ideas about what's hot and what's not in commercial real estate. But sometimes to learn about what's in front of you every day, it's smart to seek wisdom from afar. And that's exactly what we're going to do right now. On this episode, a wider perspective from a former investment banker who's a leader in international real estate. It's an interesting place to be because the the more I travel and the more opportunities I see, the more I realize how small the real estate world is. That's Michael Smith, the regional CEO for Europe and the U.S. at Maple Tree, a real estate investor with assets across Asia, Australia, Europe, and North America. Michael's based at Maple Tree's headquarters in Singapore. But we went up with him at the firm's Chicago office for a face-to-face conversation that covers the full range of the firm's multi-sector holdings. Coming up, an investor from overseas shares international insights into the economy, the capital markets, and what's looking good around the world. I'm Spencer Levy, and that's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take, and this week we are delighted to be joined by Michael Smith. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Spence. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're delighted to have you. In fact, Michael, we're here today in Chicago, but the first time we met was in Barcelona. Do you remember that? I barely remember that, yes. I remember it was late at night, but well, I do remember. Yes, the, indeed. On the beachfront. It certainly speaks to uh, what today's topic is. We're going to be talking about capital flows internationally, and having met you uh, now here in New York, in uh, Barcelona, and hoping to meet you in Singapore soon, we are going to uh, certainly have a great conversation. So first, Michael, for our audience, just tell them who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, Michael Smith, a regional CEO for our European and US business. So maybe just some background. So Maple Tree is 100% subsidiary of Tomasic, um, and Tomasic is the Singapore government investment arm. So we're not a sovereign wealth fund. We have a cousin, GIC, who is responsible for the foreign reserves of Singapore and has a lot of money coming in and out. Um, we uh, don't get any money from our parent. We have to rely on our own um, volitions to continue to recycle our capital. Um, so we grew from a Singapore business to an Asian business and now to a global business. And when I joined back in 2017, I was asked to, to spearhead our growth in Europe and the US. And it's been a lot of fun. Terrific. And so just how big are you? How assets under management? I think in total across the world, we're about 80 billion Singapore dollars now. We've sort of been doubling in size every five years since we were first put in place about 20 years ago. Um, in Europe and the US, we went from sort of a, a blank sheet back in 2017 and I think we're about 25, 28 billion Singapore dollars now across principally logistics. So we've bought quite a lot of warehouses across Europe and the US, uh, data centres, um, some strategic office and student housing. We know what we like and we know what we don't like and those are the four things we like. There you go. Uh, so for, for the benefit of our audience, what's the approximate exchange rate between the Singapore dollar and US dollar? It's about 1.4 to 1, so it's about 60 billion US, I'd say, something like that. We've got bigger cousins in Singapore. GIC is a, is a big cousin. Capital Land's a big cousin. Um, all sort of part of the government-controlled real estate network of Singapore. Um, but as I mentioned, it, I think one of the unique things about Maple Tree is that we've had no capital injection. So our growth from a couple of billion dollars of land at the beginning of the, the century to where we are now has all been self-funded. And we're growing our equity at you know, 10 to 15% return on equity over the last 20 years. So uh, our parent likes us and gives us a lot of ability to set our own course and our own directions. And part of that was a decision back in 2017 to go into Europe and the US. And it's been, as I said, a lot of fun growing the business, opening a bunch of offices, employing a lot of people and spreading the maple tree culture across the world. It's been fun. 
let's take a little bit deeper into this capital, which you self-fund, uh, and to use your terms. Are you getting this from other institutions, high net worth individuals, funding from the senior management team? Just give us a, a, a more specific sense of where the money comes from. Okay, so basically we have three public vehicles. So we have three public REITs in Singapore. Um, they're all quite large REITs. One's a logistics REIT, one's a data centre, industrial REIT, and one's a commercial REIT. Um, so we have public vehicles and we have a series of private vehicles. So basically we'll go out and we'll use our own balance sheet, our own capital, to acquire assets like we did in Europe and the US. Once we've reached sufficient scale, we'll create funds, either public vehicles or private vehicles. And then through those syndications, we'll sell down our equity. So we'll own 100% at inception. And then most of our funds and public vehicles, we are 20 to 30% of the equity and effectively the GP of the fund. Um, so that's what we've done with all of our assets that we've acquired in Europe and the US, with the greater majority. Um, last year we did three syndications, a European office, a US office and a US logistics. Um, so it's sort of a case of buying assets, um, building up the human resources, opening offices and growing the team and then syndicating at the same time. So it's being a career banker, it's been pretty interesting to go into that experience, buying, setting up a team and then syndicating at the same time. So. Well, what I think is really interesting about this, Michael, is like when you see some of these large owners of real estate, you think it's some unified entity. What really is, it's a series of funds and or other vehicles, some of which are standalone, some of them which are commingled, and it requires quite a complex skill set to do any public offering. Uh, private offerings are not much easier, but uh, certainly different. Um, so how's your background as a banker helping you um, grow the business? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was an investment banker, so it was much more capital markets, whether it's debt or equity and M&A. So I think those skills, raising equity, raising debt, um, mergers, acquisitions, making multi-billion dollar transactions, that's all sort of a merger in many, you know, not a merger, but it's a takeover in that regard. Um, so I think all of those skills were helpful. The syndication, you know, when we're raising public equity, I think we raised a couple of billion US dollars last year from third-party investors. That's a real personal relationship that you develop. And through my career at, at Goldman's and other places, there was a lot of opportunity for me, people, capital, sovereign wealth funds, insurance companies, capital who wants to go alongside us. Um, and enjoy the experience, hopefully. So, yeah, I think it's been really helpful. Uh, and I think the leadership building teams, that's been probably the most interesting aspect of opening up all the offices. We're here at the moment in Chicago because it's our US logistics team getting together. We've got 51 people in the US across our five offices just focus on logistics. None of those people knew who Maple Tree were four years ago. So that's that's been really interesting. Well, what's also interesting, and this is probably from a uh, American perspective. Uh, I grew up in New York. I now live in Baltimore, and it was a big move. It was all of 150 miles away, maybe 200 miles away. But you're from Australia. Mm -hmm. You're now in Singapore. We've met in Barcelona, New York, Chicago. You're a global citizen in many ways. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, I think so. I've got a very understanding wife, so <laughs> she uh, that helps. But no, it's an interesting place to be because the the more I travel and the more opportunities I see, the more I realise how small the real estate world is. Seeing you as many times as I have, seeing some of the counterparties, seeing either people we've acquired from or people that have invested alongside us, it's a pretty small global real estate world. You, know, you don't think it is, but of the size of the activities that we're involved in, it's a relatively small market, whether it's the broking community, the banking community, the investor community or the counterparties, there's only a small group. And I guess if you're fortunate enough to be part of that circle... Um, even when COVID came along and we were all locked down, because we had those relationships, you could do it by, you know, telephony or you could do a video conference and have that pre-existing relationship with somebody which enabled you still to do business. I think it probably would be a lot harder for a, 
a newer graduate or somebody coming into the business who doesn't have that connection and that deep pool of relationships to be able to dovetail into. So, so yeah, I think I am sort of a global real estate person, but I'm alongside a lot of people like yourself. And I mean, you know so many people in this business and it's an interestingly small business when you think about it, it is the remarkable. people make things happen. Uh, what's remarkable about it is when you speak to people who aren't in the business, so many of them are, oh, you're a residential broker. I'm like, no, I deal with office buildings and industrial buildings and, and data centers, a completely different thing. But I think it's a good lesson for some of the folks that are starting out in commercial real estate to hear your story of how you started as a banker and you work for this client and you set up entities because that's how it works. Absolutely. I think that those relationships that you forge when you've started your career, as long as you don't burn bridges and you stay you know, being a committed person to the industry and to your friends and you you can grow with those people. So many of the people that I met when I graduated are now CEOs of companies or large investors in their own right or whatever it is. Through the many decades of being in this business, you grow with those people as well. So, Without a doubt. So let's dig now a little bit into where we are as a market. I think it's fair to say that, uh, yeah, last year was remarkably good. Uh, notwithstanding the fact we were still knee-deep in the uh, pandemic. We're not past the pandemic yet by any measure, but this year is a horse of a different color. We are now seeing tremendous inflation. We see the uh, Russia-Ukraine situation. We see other factors that are making the capital markets much more difficult, choppy, expensive. How do you see it? I think one of the benefits of Maple Tree and global real estate businesses is that we can see the different parts of the world and it is probably moving into some type of global recession but different pockets are still offering opportunity. We're still seeing Singapore for instance is the real estate market there is being really really good. In pockets of Vietnam you know we're a large investor and developer in Vietnam it's fantastic. The sectors that we're exposed to particularly data centers and logistics still have a lot of tailwinds. I think we've been fortunate of being able to not, if we were just a residential builder in a certain market where interest rates were rising and we were really exposed to margins and what was going on, that would be tough. But I think having a global purview and being in more resilient sectors has been really helpful for us. But look, without doubt, you're right. That was the positive spin, the negative spin. And I was in London over the last week and um, I'm supposed to be in Warsaw in a couple of weeks. It's pretty tough in Europe. The headwinds of wars, of inflation, of energy crisis and stuff is pretty tough. I think when I come and see the US, at least the US is not going through any of that. There is no energy crisis. There is no war on the borders. I think the Fed here is doing an amazing job of being in the front foot of trying to ensure that whatever happens, that the US corrects itself first and moves on, which I then think will be great for the rest of the world. I think given the fact that the US is half of the world's capital markets, once the US economy is back on track, I think that's going to be great for places like Germany and Italy and places that produce pretty good products that... Americans like to buy. So I think there'll be that knock-on effect as well that as long as the US can get out of what the world is in at the moment and gets out well, then I think that augurs well for the rest of the world. But definitely right now, from our perspective, we are pausing, we're being a little bit more circumspect. We've always been a pretty disciplined investor. Now I think we're probably even more disciplined. We're just making sure that whatever we're doing makes sense and questioning whether things that we're looking at now are going to be cheaper in six months' time. You know, all the impacts of everything I just said, is it, is it the right time to buy? Very difficult to uh, time the bottom. And uh, one of the good things about our business, and I've talked to many of our clients about that, is very often we get blinded by the light of the spot market, where it is at the moment. And at the moment where we're talking today, Michael, we're in a moment of great volatility. 
and that's certainly making you pause, to use your words. Uh, it's causing people to change their underwriting for the cost of debt and availability of debt, cap rate expectations. But at the same time, we are in a long-term business. Uh, most people in the commercial real estate business hold their assets 10-plus uh, years. Um, there are some that do three, five, seven years and more opportunistic capital. But taking a longer-term view, I think, creates the ability to see opportunities where others might not. Do you agree? Absolutely. I think this is in our annual report, but you know, we always have about $10 billion Singapore dollars of cash or undrawn facilities all the time, you know, as we do now. I think we've got more than that now. So from a, a liquidity position for us, and given our parent is a $400 billion AAA-rated entity, I think we are in a pretty good position to be able to definitely withstand any of the storm that's approaching, but also be opportunistic and be able to pick our marks and pick our spots. So um, I think just right now the question is how do we manage our own real estate portfolio? How do we ensure operational excellence? How do we ensure that we get all of our assets revalued every year? There's a big question mark about what valuations are going to do this year and how we ensure that in the sectors that we're in that the reversions, the rental reversions are strong enough to compensate for any cap rate expansion. So in that backdrop we were focused on making sure our own assets perform incredibly well and that they preserve their value should we really be going and buying something else until we've bettered down our own business. So that uh, in that environment, going to the investment committee and asking for a couple of billion dollars to buy something is not as easy as it was a couple mm-hmm. of years ago. <laughs> well, it's easy for me to say we're not in a spot market business. We're in a long-term business. Yes. But you have to market your portfolios you have to today. That. So there, the spot market has real, uh, real weight uh, particularly when you're measuring yourself against uh, various peers. So um, it's nice to think long-term, but you uh, need to take care of your existing portfolio first. We really look at the fundamentals of where we should be investing and why. And what's more important to us than currency discrepancies is the resilience of the income. Are we in a sector that we truly believe in and we think we've got real expertise that we can have tenant relationships in the US that we can transfer to China or to Vietnam. And we, we think in the logistics space, there's not that many global players who really can move a Chinese technology company from China to Warsaw to Warsaw to Chicago. We have that opportunity and we want to continue building that. Prologis has that, Goodman have that, there's a couple of other global players who have that, but that's a skill set that we want to continue to develop and we'll keep developing that skill set through cycles. That's one of the beauties of industrial. I used to say that about retail too, is that if you're a big retail operator, the retailers repeat themselves over and over again. But industrial now as a global business, much more global than retail, though retail does have certain global elements to it, uh, does give you a huge competitive advantage to have a logistics business that is global in nature because you're going to repeat your tenants. Yeah, and if we've got a particular relationship with a Vietnamese e-commerce company that wants to go to Malaysia or wants to go to the US and we've been a trusted landlord or counterparty for them, they're more than likely they're going to come with us when they decide to expand overseas. So you actually have that trusted relationship that you can deal with companies that, you know, if you think about the Chinese technology companies, the last 10 years have been amazing, you know, whether JD.com and others, and as they've all expanded through the different fits and starts, but as they have, they are more likely to hopefully travel with us or, or a prologist or somebody that they're familiar with in their home market. So, Michael Industrial, boy, I, I don't think there's any asset class that has performed better in the last five-plus years, maybe longer, than industrial. We see some markets here in the United States, uh, in the Inland Empire, Southern California, elsewhere, 50%-plus annual rent growth and an average rent growth of 20%. Uh, tell us about industrial. Why do you like it, and uh, how do you see it going? Maple Tree listed their first REIT back in 2005. 
and I was the banker on the deal back then. I wasn't with Maple Tree, but that was, I think, 12 or 13 warehouses in Singapore. And it's Maple Tree Logistics Trust. And I remember the roadshow, we had to explain to investors what logistics was and what supply chain was. And it was just so little information or knowledge about what a warehouse was. I think it was hard enough for Prologis and some of the big guys in the more Western markets, but in Asia, it was really, really difficult. That vehicle now, I think, is an $8 billion market cap, nearly 200 assets across 15 countries in, in Asia. It's the, one of the biggest logistics warehouse businesses. So that business has been in our DNA. We actually, Maple Tree came out of the Singapore port. So PSA is the Singapore Port Authority. It was going to go public. I was a banker on that deal as well. The decision was that the real estate should be separated from the port. By the time that happened, the IPO market went away and the port was never listed. But there was a pool of assets sitting there, which is now Maple Tree. And some of those assets were the warehouses that found their way into this first public vehicle. So as a part of who Maple Tree came from, we obviously do other things now, but logistics really is in the core DNA. So for us, we've just continued on that path from what we've inherited in Singapore to what we've grown through Asia to what we now do, whether that's Australia or Malaysia and Vietnam, Korea. I think we've done 130 warehouses that we've built on our own volition in China. Um, we're starting a development business now in the US and in Europe on the back of the assets we've acquired. So that's a true core business of Maple Tree. We're not one-dimensional, that's not our only business, but it's great that it's the biggest business. <laughs> We're quite happy with that. <laughs> it's a, I don't think I'm telling our listeners it's something they don't know, it's a good time it's not a bad to time. be long industrial. It's not a bad time. For sure. But you know, at the same time, a lot of people are long industrial. Mm-hmm. And so you know, the question is, is it too good? And I say this not to disparage industrial. Do you see any storm clouds on the horizon? You know, we've thought about this. We came into the US market in 2018. We didn't own a warehouse. We've got 353 warehouses now, about 70 million square feet, which I think we're somewhere near the back of the top 10. Um, Anybody could have done that. There could have been any capital from anywhere in the world who required large portfolios and took a view about where US logistics would be five years ago, and we did. And we're really very happy with that outcome, and we're still getting fantastic reversions. As you said, we're getting 20 to 30% type reversions across our portfolio. So... um, We don't see any headwinds. We've thought a lot about what's the disruptive sort of game changer which is going to affect the business, but there doesn't feel to us right now this pullback in e-commerce, what happened through the pandemic and then e-commerce has pulled back a bit, but we're still seeing just multiple sources of demand, particularly the close, the urban type logistics is just phenomenal. And they're really, there's been a lot of supply and I think CBRE is one of the best researchers. I get your reports every week and love reading them. Um, and there's a huge volume of supply, but yet vacancies are still down at, what, 2 or 3% across the US. So it just seems to be this insatiable appetite for demand, which is driving rents. And if you look at it from an occupier's perspective, you talked about retail before. Retail is maybe 20%, whatever the rule of thumb is, that they can afford to pay rent as a percentage of turnover. But as you know, these warehouse operators or tenants are maybe 2 3 4% of their revenues goes to rent. So there's still a huge opportunity, we think, for them to increase paying rent because they have to be in these locations. It's strategically imperative that they're in these locations and operating their businesses. I think there's two two basic elements to location decisions. There's probably 20, but two basic ones. One is labor availability and cost, and we're certainly seeing that uh, that being stretched right now. And second, if you're a distribution facility, how close are you to your other facilities, your retail facilities, we had on this show recently Walgreens and talked about their distribution centers. We had on the show recently a U.S. farmer's market called Sprouts, and they said we can't be more than 250 miles from any one of our Sprouts retail locations. So how much is labor 
availability play into your real estate investing decision? That's a great question. I, I flew over from London and I landed in New York yesterday and we went and looked at one of our buildings, which is about to become vacant. And that sits in Pennsylvania. It was about an hour away from New York. You know? But it's a big, big, big building and we're going to have to spend a little bit more money on it to get it right up to speed. But one of the biggest issues when we were with a broker is the availability of labour. It's a great location infrastructure-wise, but with unemployment as low as it is here and trying to find the number of people that you need to operate a warehouse of that size was an issue. So we see it firsthand. When we bought these portfolios of real estate, I think as we evolve our business and we get more into development, we'll be able to be a little bit more surgical about the locations. But when we buy a $2 billion, $3 billion portfolio of warehouses, you get what's in that portfolio and some of them aren't always the best locations. But even though that happened, we've still been... Very, very happy with the outcome because the whole market has been so strong that even some of the more difficult or more challenged locations are still, you know, vacancies at 2% you know, at some point. And if an occupier like Walgreen need the space where we're located, there may be two or three opportunities for them of a warehouse in our size. So they have to come and have a look at our property. And then it's a pricing issue, it's a discussion around different variables and then they'll take it. Right now we're very, very fortunate by where the market still is. And as I said, we just can't see anything that's going to change that. Unless you can. I'd love to get your view. Is there? Well, do you have a suspicion that something's going to... No, I do not have a suspicion. <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess I can give you the big picture. The big picture is we see what you see, which is a disproportionate number of uh, Americans are migrating to the southeast, southwest and Texas. But that does not mean for a moment that the large existing markets like Chicago, where we're sitting right now, like New York, like L.A., aren't going to be great markets for years to come, particularly in industrial multifamily. But I also like them in certain pockets in office. And I know, uh, Michael, I was fortunate to work with you and your team on some of your uh, office acquisitions here uh, in the United States. And I, I would say that's the area that we see the greatest question marks, though we do see opportunity. How do you see it? I don't disagree. We are being more circumspect about our office acquisitions, just given the uncertainty that's happening with the occupier, whether it's working from home, post-pandemic, all these different impacts that are now influencing the decision-makers of some of these large office tenants as to whether we should extend, whether we should shrink. There's just a lot of uncertainty. So in that backdrop, we're also a little bit uncertain. Um, but when we went through last year, we made a, a few acquisitions here. I think we bought your office that you occupy in, uh, in Texas and Gallatin. Um, but we focused on technology, pharma companies, healthcare companies, companies. This was pre-pandemic when we made these acquisitions, but the focus was what is the industry group where people need to collaborate, where people really need to be in an office. And, you know, the technology companies are still big advocates of being back to the office. I know they've had resistance. A lot of the research life science companies by their nature need to be collaborative and need to be in the same office context. So we were fortunate that pre-pandemic, that was our focus point. And that's what we've continued to do. So the offices that we own across the US are still 95% occupied, long-term leases to those type of tenants, um, throwing off a really good yield because we locked in pretty cheap rates for the fund. Mm -hmm. So that's working. We have a fund in Australia which is not working so well. Some of those assets were a little bit more fringy. They were not so longer dated leases, more professional services, smaller businesses, and the occupancy there has fallen. Um, the fund that we put together in Europe has worked quite well because it was a little bit similar to the one in the US. So we've got um, TikTok, ByteDance on a 15-year lease. We've got Microsoft on a lease. These guys want to be in their office. They're on long-term leases. They spend a lot of money on their fit-outs and they want their people to come back. Um, so, yeah, I think we're okay with that exposure, but we're not sure we want to go back into anything else right now while the occupiers are still so uncertain. Is that a similar view that... Yeah, I, I would say got? it's a similar view, but 
Um, when there is a dislocation, I always say, well, where is the opportunity, right? So we're sitting here in Chicago right now. We're sitting here in the Loop. Uh, we're actually right next to the Willis Tower, one of the most famous buildings in the world. But the Loop right now in Chicago is a little soft. I think that a lot of the leasing activity right now is going to places like the Fulton Market, which is a few blocks away from here, uh, which a couple of years ago was getting about 5% of the market's leasing activity. Now it's over 25%. Uh, but we're seeing that same story all over the United States in places like Hudson Yards in New York City, where we're seeing them pull a lot of the tenants out of the east side of Manhattan. We're seeing it in markets like L.A., where people are going from Bunker Hill to Santa Monica. In Miami, they're going from uh, downtown and Brickell maybe to Wynwood. And I go right through the story. All of these markets have the same characteristics. One of them is the thing that you mentioned, Michael, is the type of tenant that needs to collaborate, often tech, but not always tech. Uh, but they also have a live-work-play environment. Many people want to walk to work. And then they also have an education base, a capital base. All these things are the same. CBRE is coming out with a report in a couple of weeks called the Tech 30, which is going to name many of these sub-markets that we like. But that's how I see opportunity in office today, where if you go to one of these great sub-markets, you've got great tenancy, there may be a buying opportunity, notwithstanding the headwinds. you agree with that? Yeah, no, I do. And look, one of our other verticals is student housing. We're a very large owner of student housing across the UK and Canada and the US. Um, and we love smart cities. We love smart parts of the world. In Philadelphia, we have a new building that we built just right next door to Wharton. Um, and we've got another one there. So on the University of Penn, I think we're probably one of the largest student housing owners there and developers. So that concept of people wanting to stay in those smart jurisdictions instead of coming into New York stay in Philly and then the industry start going to Philly and then if there's a business park opportunity or an office life science type opportunity, that's how we would then evolve into. So in the US we bought in Raleigh-Durham, in Dallas we bought in Gallatin, we didn't buy San Francisco, we bought in Oakland um, where Block or Square have a long dated lease. So we were of that mindset as well. The downtowns, the sort of loop type, we, we don't have any exposure to that type of market. Well, Michael, we were getting along just fine until you brought up University of Pennsylvania. I'm a Cornell guy. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, you know, I just had to show my big red colors here. Go. But yeah. when you're looking at student housing, I remember doing an analysis with our student housing team, and they said that if you're in a big-time football school, which sounds like a irrelevant me metric, but it is a metric, your cap rates are 50 basis points lower, your tenancy is much better. How do you underwrite student housing? It's not easy, I must say. And we, we also, similar to what we did with our logistics and data centres here, was we bought big portfolios. Now that we're developing student housing, we can be a lot more surgical. Once you go into that sort of single asset development phase, and you can be a lot more. But we wanted to build the base that we have here now across the sectors that we know so that we understand the market in real time, not just through broker research, which is great, but also by actually owning and operating the assets. But there's a lot of variables. The student housing business is an incredibly operating intense business. You know, looking after students who sign one-year leases, um, it's tough. It's not easy. But it's very recession resilient. So we're, whatever we're moving into in the world recession-wise, people tend to study a bit longer or they'll tend to go and improve themselves and go do an MBA or do something else. So we've found it to be a great asset class for that. It's just operationally very intense. So before we get on to the other topics, I do have to ask you a question because I don't want to forget. So we had, a, as a guest on this show about a year ago, Carmen Hurrigan, who you may know. Oh, she, yes. She's the office head for uh, Charter Hall. Yep. And I asked her what I thought was the most important question we've ever asked. I said, well, as an Australian, hmm. what is the best band that ever came out of Australia? She gave a surprising answer, but I want your answer. <laughs> this is going to show that we're probably of a similar age. No, I'm probably older than her. Um, gosh, I don't know. What's the best band? In Excess, I guess, has probably been the wow. most favourite 
you gave the same, orientated? You gave the same answer okay. from an American perspective. I thought ACDC would, Actually, would win in a landslide. But they were Scottish, weren't they? Were this? No, they were Australian. I yeah, think they're Australian. Yeah, okay. We'll uh, give it to them. No, we'll, yeah. take, we'll take ACDC. Take, take ACDC. I probably should have taken ACDC. Uh, Either one. Well, there you go. Four-letter acronyms. There you go. So um, now that we're past the most important question, Thank Michael, you. Uh, let's go to uh, data centers. Mm-hmm. Data centers are proliferating everywhere, and they use a lot of power. And when I say power, I mean a lot of power. They also use a lot of water, uh, which is one of the downsides to the business is that because E and the ESG um, lexicon is now becoming more and more important. How do you underwrite acquisitions of data centers, the development of them, taking into consideration some of these limitations? It's a great question. The whole ESG topic is just so much more important now than it's, I think, ever been before and will only keep getting more important. As per the, the Paris Agreement, we've got a net zero 2050 target, which our parent has as well. So we're, we're very focused on ensuring that we've got to manage to measure the data. There's no point managing any of this without being able to measure it. And the trouble with some of the asset classes that we're in is that the tenant has a lot of the responsibility of how much energy and power they use. So these triple net leases, which are great from a landlord's perspective, whether that's warehouses or data centres, the actual user of the power is a technology company. So it's really making sure that there's a shareholder engagement, stakeholder engagement with the tenant where we can work together. In many cases, what we're seeing is that many of our large tenants also have pretty strong ESG requirements thrust upon them as well. So they're a lot more amenable to sharing data and information to us. So where we are right now is how much power and how much energy is actually being used in our properties because we just don't know. So we're doing things like green leases and making sure that we have access to that data and that we can really understand and work collaboratively with the tenant to then try and think about ways of how we can start mitigating and changing that, whether it's renewable energy, putting solar power on top of our warehouses across the world, there's probably a lot of opportunity for us to help. How do we then do that? How do we, you know, I think where we are right now is we know we're on the path, we know what we need to know, but we don't know it yet. And we really just need to investigate in collaboration with our tenants and do a better job. You use the term green leases, which is being able to monitor the tenant and their energy use in particular uh, at the site. But one, one of the shows that we had here about a year ago, we had the two authors of the book called Healthy Buildings, two Harvard professors. And what they said was that from the wellness perspective, uh, that notwithstanding the fact that they have objective evidence that makes you uh, more less sick days, more cognitively aware, that landlords were still reluctant to make the changes because the landlord paid all the cost, the tenant had all the benefit. And what you just said was a green lease, which I think is the future, which is you can't just make it us and them, landlord and tenant. It has to be more of a shared relationship. Is that what the green lease is? In simple forms, yes. Is that right for us to be told what is being used in our property? We have certain rights that if they want to leave or they want to do some type of significant enhancement that the way that the the waste in that, you know, so if we're going to rip out an office, we want to make sure that that's ripped out in an environmentally friendly way and as best we can, we can recycle and all these type of things we try to embody in the lease. So there's a contractual understanding up front that we're going to cooperate together as best we can to ensure the E in ESG is maintained. Um, But yeah, a lot of it is the data. We really want to have access because our office portfolio is different. We know the janitorial costs. We know the energy costs. They come to us and we pay for them. But it's the warehouse and data centres is a lot more tricky when it's a triple net lease and they basically are responsible for everything. So we have to 
contract with them so that they enable us to understand ourselves a bit better and understand. And as I said, the bigger tenants have got their own ESG requirements now. There's a lot more onus on them. So they're a lot more willing. Some of the smaller tenants are a little bit more reluctant. Um, I imagine as we do this with data centre tenants, they may be a little bit more reluctant as well. So we've just got to navigate, but we've got to make sure that they understand that this is all in our best interest because they've got the same pressures that we have to be a better business as it relates to ESG. So Michael, I would love to get your uh, your final thoughts on uh, what your uh, outlook is for Maple Tree in the next couple of years, where you see the opportunities and the challenges, and any words of wisdom you want to give to our listeners. Well, that's a big ask. I'm an optimistic person, and glass is always half full. I think the world is a is a great place. Maybe I'm sounding too cliche, but I do think that whatever we're going through economically right now will get solved. There's enough people focused on the problems at hand, central banks and others that will, will get through. I think the US will get through first, as I said, and I, hopefully that will be a precursor for others to follow. Um, I think Europe will have its problems. I think Asia's, as you said, China's got some issues, but they're spending a lot of money to, to get out of some of their issues. So I think all in all, real estate's correlation to GDP and global growth is pretty strong. So the better that the world is, the better the real estate market's going to be. Maple Tree, we've had a lot of success in being able to pick the right markets and the right sort of more resilient sectors, and I think we'll continue to do that. I think some of the things we talked about more broadly around you know, people growing in the real estate industry, it's a real people game. The relationships are absolutely important. So if you're new in the real estate industry, start with your eyes open and make lots of friends and foster lots of good long-term relationships because um, they really count. This is really a people business and it's a great business to grow a career in. Great. Well, I think that's a great way to end it. And uh, now one last question. Will, will you change your vote from in excess to ACDC or are you sticking with <laughs> you it? Have <laughs> you can have two. You can have two. Well, on behalf of the Weekly Take, it was a, a privilege to have Michael Smith, regional CEO, Europe and USA Maple Tree. Uh, Michael, we have now met in Chicago, in New York and in Barcelona, maybe next time in Singapore or Vietnam. Singapore. Or Vietnam. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. For more on Maple Tree and the global investing scene, not to mention more on our show, please visit our website, cbre.com slash the weekly take. We hope you'll join us again next week as we continue to explore the world of commercial real estate. And if you like what we're doing, please help us build our international audience. You can share the show as well as subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. Thanks for that. And thanks for joining us. I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well.